The Innovate 608 podcast is brought to you by Starting Block Madison and sponsored by the Wisconsin State Journal, Madison.com, and the American Family Insurance Institute for Corporate and Social Impact. The Institute invests in visionary entrepreneurs who are building scalable social enterprises, offering economic opportunity for all, healthy youth development, learning, and academic achievement, and resilient communities. From the Starting Block Madison studio in the beautiful Capital East neighborhood of downtown Madison, Wisconsin, this is the Innovate 608 podcast, and I am your host, Nora Rowan-Schmidt. Today in the studio, we have Rochelle Martin of the Winnow Fund. Rochelle, hello. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, I am excited to be here. It's really great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, and your journey to the Winnow Fund. Yeah. Uh, wow. So the Winnow Fund's wrapping up its first full year of investment. So this is a fun time. Thank you. It's a fun time to reflect back on where I've been and how I got here. Um, I'm a lawyer by education. Never thought I would find myself in the investment world, but I had an interest in startups that began when I was in law school. I was working in what's called the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic at Wisconsin Law, and I got hooked from the very beginning. It's so exciting working with entrepreneurs. I went from law school into regular private practice, not the same level of excitement. So after about 10 months in private practice, that was the extent of my legal career, I started working at UW-Madison, and I worked at the intersection of uh, industry-sponsored research and labs that were seeking funding. It was really exciting to see where these huge you know, international corporations, all the way down to startups, were putting their funding and what kind of problems they were trying to solve, and talking to the people on campus that were actually solving them. Labs are like little startups. They are constantly trying to problem solve, but also constantly looking for money. And it was another place that I thought was really exciting to be. So I kind of put it together. There were a lot of really innovative, uh, motivated people on campus. We had students, faculty, staff coming into my office with startup ideas, wanting to know where they could get advice on starting a company around an innovative product or technology, uh, something that came out of a capstone project or a thesis or sponsored research. And we didn't have great places to direct them. This was a while ago. Things have certainly changed. But what I realized is my passion and my skills would be much better used outside of that environment through a very fortuitous uh, volunteer, uh, you know, um, uh, opportunity. I was working in the beer tent at an event called Jazz at Five because uh, a friend asked me to. And that's where I met my mentor. Uh, he was on the board of Jazz at Five, said, hey, you're a new volunteer. We got to talking. Um, that was Ken Johnson, Ken Johnson, who founded Kiganza Seed Fund, Kiganza Capital Partners. He is a partner in the Badger Fund of Funds. And he listened to my background and said, we didn't know someone like you existed. If you start a venture fund, I will help you get funding. And I, I mean, I didn't know pretty much anything about venture. So it was a learning curve. But well, what I realized is there is no educational path to becoming <laughs> a fund manager. And everyone I've met has different backgrounds, different skills. You know, some are more technical, some are business. Uh, and so it's been really fun 
to learn and to apply what I've done in the past to the fund. And so that's why my fund focuses, we primarily try to source investment opportunities from colleges and universities across the state of Wisconsin. That is not the only place we invest uh, because you know we're gonna invest in whatever is the best opportunity. But uh, anything in the early stage sector in Wisconsin is something that we would consider. Tell me a little bit about how you raised all of the money to start your fund. What was that process like? Was it a year, six months? I remember when I first started in my position at Starting Block, reading about all of your successes. How did all of that come together? Yeah, no one, no one likes fundraising. No one becomes a you know a venture capital fund manager because they like the fundraising process. I fundraise like startups fundraise. I went out, pitched to investors. Uh, explained what my investment strategy was, what my goals were, how I was hoping to accomplish that, who I was going to be utilizing to kind of supplement my skills and, you know, my lack of experience. And I pitched hundreds of investors, uh, you know, individuals, nonprofits, corporations, um, anyone that kind of fit the qualifications for the investors that I needed and anyone that would give me time. It was terrifying to begin with. I thought, oh, no, what if they tell me no? Okay, well, you know what I learned? You're going to hear no a lot, and it's not that big of a deal. So uh, that's a piece of advice I always like to share with entrepreneurs. People will tell you no for so many reasons, and you can't take it personally, and you just move on. Because I would say for every eight or nine, maybe even ten investors that I pitched, I probably heard, you know, eight knows maybe one or two yeses. Uh, It was a long process. I started raising in September of 2018. In September of 2019, we did our initial close. Well, it was a little later than that, uh, November. We held our initial close. So we hit our kind of a minimum um, amount that we were looking to raise uh, to get the ball rolling. And then, you know, COVID. So that slowed things down for sure. The biggest transition was not meeting investors in person. It is a tough sell to say, hey, can you invest 100000 500000 in my fund, never having met me, uh, and I'm a first-time fund manager, so I don't have a track record that they could go out and you know look into. There weren't companies I'd invested in before or investors that I'd worked with before, so there weren't a lot of reference points for them. And it really took a while to start getting people comfortable with meeting by phone or by Zoom. But since we've been doing that for so long, um, you know, after a few months, it kind of became the new normal. So we did uh, hold our final close. And I say we because I have an investment committee that supports me. But we held our final close on December 31st of 2020. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between the Winnow Fund and the Badger Fund of Funds and some of the other folks doing similar work um, throughout the state. The Badger Fund of Funds is my biggest investor. Uh, And I am part of a collection of other funds in which they are also that other fund's biggest investor. So there's five uh, funds under that Badger Fund portfolio. You know, Winnow Fund, my fund is the earliest focused We um, invest in kind of pre-seed, pre-revenue, I think is maybe the easiest way to describe it, typically pre-revenue. And sometimes we make proof of concept um, investments as well. 
And then Gateway Capital, which is out of Milwaukee, Dana Guthrie, you know, she is the newest fund and she has a similar focus, but she focuses more in the Milwaukee area. Uh, and like I said, I'm a little more hoping to source from colleges and universities. And then we have Winnebago Fund and, and Idea Fund. They are both a little bit more traditional pre-seed, um, and they were geographically focused as well. So Winnebago is up in Fox Valleys, and Idea Fund is in the La Crosse area, so western Wisconsin. They've both um, completed their initial investment uh, phases, and so they are not making active investments right now. And so our fifth one that is still active is Rock River Capital, and they are a little more growth-focused. So they would invest in companies in a stage likely after a fund like mine or Gateway would. But we all, like I said, share the same large investor of the Badger Fund of Funds. The significance of the Badger Fund is that they are a public-private partnership. They have state taxpayer dollars. So it was about $25 million from the state of Wisconsin, which was set aside specifically to encourage use of venture capital dollars to promote entrepreneurial activity in the state. And the Badger Fund went out and privately raised um, a little under $10 million. So a total $35 million fund. And their goal was to generate more venture activity. But what they wanted to do was invest in first-time fund managers. The plan is to make this more of a profession than a pastime. There um, is a little bit of, you know, a difference in someone who can do fund one, fund two, fund three when they're earlier on in their career than if it's something they start after they've retired from a kind of a more traditional full-time job. And so that is why they invested in the people that they did, the people they picked to lead these funds and to support because we all plan on doing this at least one or two or maybe three more times. How do all of you work together and um, maybe support each other is the, the wrong word, but how do you work together? Oh, it's great. I don't have coworkers. I you know, manage the fund by myself. And my investment committee is around for investment decisions, uh, but they're kind of, they're my colleagues. We get together about quarterly. We have fund manager meetings where we talk about best practices, common problems that we're having. We share resources, deal flow, uh, you know, things that are just relevant to what we're all doing since we do share a lot of, um, you know, similar approaches to investment. And then it's nice to have other people that have done it before. So like I mentioned, Winnebago and Idea Fund are both done with their initial investment period. So they're telling us, you know, the good, the bad, uh, problems that they could have avoided, things that worked well for them. So it's been really great to have them sort of just as this great group of colleagues that I can rely on. And we're all very supportive of each other. And then we also work, I think, very well with the broader venture and angel community in Wisconsin. So they're kind of all my, that's, that's my office, right? Like, those are all my coworkers, but we all kind of work alone. Fundraising and the venture world is one of the things that we hear from entrepreneurs and startups, just how intimidating the entire process is. Um, many folks are unsure how to approach the Winnow Fund or any of these other folks. 
what are some best practices? I'm sure you have seen everything in the universe from fail-worthy (laughs) encounters to some really smart approaches. What are some best practices if I am a startup and I'm I'm seeking $500,000, for example? First, I've been there. So my fund is a little different. Not all fund managers had to raise. You know, corporate VCs have funds that are set aside out of a larger pool of money. So they don't have that same fundraising experience. But I just, for people that approach me, know that I have been in your shoes. I've sent awkward, cold emails that never got a response. I've had bad pitches. So I think that I have a unique perspective on it when entrepreneurs come to pitch the Winnow Fund. What I would say is, uh, you know, don't be afraid to reach out, first of all. Because again, the worst thing you can hear is no. And you may hear no because you don't meet our criteria, because we already have something similar in our portfolio. Uh, None of it necessarily means that you have a bad idea. So I just want people to kind of get that out of their heads before they even get started. The best way to approach it is keep it very simple. I like an email or use of the contact form on my website, winnowfund.com. And I say, keep it brief. Say, hi, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Can I have a few minutes of your time? And again, we invest in Wisconsin-based companies. So if you're not a Wisconsin company, um, you know, you're probably going to get just a short no from me. But, you know, if you are and you are looking for that early stage investment, as you said, we make investments typically 250 to 500,000 in pre-revenue companies. And if you meet those criteria, then it really doesn't hurt just to send that note over. What I think is a good approach, and this is personal preference, start small. So start with that intro email. If you get a response from me, I will probably ask for an executive summary, typically a one or two page document. Try not to make it more than that. Uh, And then beyond that, I might set up a time to do the pitch meeting. Part of the process is building a relationship with that investor. So something that I think people feel pressured to do is do it all at once. So they might send over an email that's three paragraphs long. It has an executive summary, a pitch deck that's 20 slides, revenue projections, all of it right from the very beginning. What I find is someone will read that and make a decision without ever talking to you, but a huge part of that relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur is getting to know each other. So that's why I like that process of, you know, starting small and building on it from there over the course of maybe two, three, or four interactions. We live in an instant gratification world where even fundraising feels like something that should be quick and easy. What is a realistic timeline for fundraising? Yeah, we have investment committee meetings scheduled monthly. We cancel them if we don't have a a good opportunity to discuss. And so I like to say that I could get an investment done in a month. The limiting factor is often the diligence process, not the decision-making process. When a company pitches to my investment committee, they get an answer before the meeting is over. So if the pitch comes in 
And I should say, if you pitch to my investment committee, I'm already a yes. I've already said yes, helped you prepare. You know, I'm your advocate and bring you to the committee. And then the committee votes yes or no, you find out before we walk out of that meeting. That's when the diligence process begins for the yeses. Another thing I really advise startups to do is put a deal room together as soon as you start getting those documents. And a deal room is something like Docs on Dropbox. You know, some people use Google Drive, but it's where you keep those important documents. Incorporation, uh, you know, if you have founders agreements, bank statements, tax returns, all of the stuff that someone's going to ask for if they are looking to make an investment. Because if you have that together, we could potentially write a check in a week. We haven't yet. I'm really hoping someone's going to, you know, kind of meet those expectations soon. But, you know, we have the ability to write a check almost instantly. The uh, due diligence process and the investment negotiation process is what takes longer. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be a woman in your position. There aren't too many women doing the work that you're doing. So it's really something to be, you know, commended and congratulated and definitely cheered on. Thank what you. are some of the the ups and downs of um being one of the only women in the room at times, I assume. Yeah, it it's fun and it's awkward. But I feel I have never met someone who has intentionally made me feel like I don't belong or made me feel uncomfortable. What I've realized is if I'm the only woman in a room, it's weird for me, but it is probably also weird for all of the other people in the room. And they didn't go there to make me feel uncomfortable. They're just there doing what they need to do, just like I am. So I've said it before, I'm just going to keep showing up until it stops being weird. And hopefully more women are going to start showing up and it's going to be, you know, less weird faster. I don't know the best way to put that. But we do have an extremely supportive community. And I know that there's a lot of nuance to the description that the Winnow Fund has gotten. I'm not the first female venture capitalist by any means. There are women that have done this before me. I think the, the very specific description is I'm the first woman to start her own venture capital fund. Uh, which, you know, I'm still very proud of. But there are women that came before me, and I'm so happy to have been able to meet them and have their support and their encouragement and their advice. Um, And it's not just women in the community. The Badger Fund has been amazing. They took the time to educate me, to make sure that I understood exactly what I was getting myself into, and they threw all their support behind me as well. And then once I became part of that Badger Fund, uh, you know, kind of group, then the other funds were just the same. So we are an incredibly welcoming community, and I hope to encourage more women to get involved as I, you know, kind of grow and learn and have the ability to pass that on to them. What opportunities exist to make that more of a reality? I know that Doyen is offering some education um, for people interested in investment and also for people needing investment. What are some other things that can be done in order to encourage more women to participate? 
I would love to see more women investors because I think then we would see more support for women entrepreneurs. Right now, it's great that there are funds focused on kind of historically overlooked uh, entrepreneurs, but I think the long-term solution is to get the investor pool to look more like the entrepreneur pool. And to do that, I think education is the way. We want people to feel comfortable. Um, I've heard it before, and I think it's a really great way to think about it. Women are not more risk-averse. They just want to understand the risk. So education is huge in getting over that. I am so proud to be part of Joanne's Investor Accelerator Program. Um, you know, Joanne has put such a great uh, sort of educational opportunity together. And, you know, I just, I kind of help facilitate it. But without the Joanne community, that would not be a reality either. But what we have done is put women in a, women in a situation where they feel comfortable asking questions, where we start with the basics, but we follow it from start to finish. So how do you understand? What are the definitions that are used? What, what kind of words are you going to hear? Talk like an investor. That's the way that we describe it. All the way from learning to talk like an investor to finding investment opportunities, finding groups that you can belong to that help you with deal flow and you know negotiation of terms. All the way through to what happens when you get a K-1 and you have to file your taxes or if a company you invested in fails because I think they need the big picture. You know, people don't want to get halfway into it and realize that they don't know what they're doing. So we give them that education to go all the way from start to finish. And on the flip side, we encourage entrepreneurs to participate in that program too because if an entrepreneur understands what it's like on the investor side, I think that they can connect with them better when they're pitching for investment. Are you starting to see more women coming to you to... Uh, seek investment for their startups? Um, and if so, has there been anyone, you know, particularly inspiring or exciting that you can talk about? I am so excited about one of our investments. It is in a company called Roddy Medical. I did my undergrad at UW-Milwaukee. When I was there, I didn't hear the word entrepreneurship once. And now there is a building the Lubar Entrepreneurship Center that's right in the middle of campus. You can't miss it. So it's it's exciting to see how much that this education is spreading, the entrepreneurial education. But I invested in Roddy Medical, which is a spin-out of UW-Milwaukee with a woman CEO. And she's amazing. She's so passionate about what she does. She is a nurse, so she had to learn the business side. And part of what she did is surround herself with other individuals with some experience. And there's some great women on her team that have helped her get to where she is. She is um, in the uh, process of commercializing their product for sale. So they are going to be revenue generating hopefully soon. And I think it's just a fantastic story. For me, it's very personal because, you know, it's my, my alma mater. It's a woman CEO. It's one of my first investments. Um, and it's doing really well. So that was exciting. Can we talk about this product or is that portion top secret at this time? Oh, no, I'm going to tell everyone oh, about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Everyone needs to buy it. Uh, it is an armband that organizes tubes, lines, and cords. So um, Lindsay Roddy, she was working, I believe it was in the in ICU room, and someone tripped over some of the cords for a patient that had just gotten out of a very significant surgery, and he coded. So, you know, the patient almost died. So between it being a hazard to have these cords all over the place, a danger, you know, to the safety of any patient, and then a huge cost to the hospital when that happens um, because, you know, they have to call in a lot of extra people. There's emergency care. That patient may have to stay in the hospital longer. And she thought there has to be a better way to manage this. So it's an armband that the tubes, lines, and cords run through, and it's set up so that there can be slack between where they're connected to the patient, but if there is force on the other side, the armband absorbs it so that there is uh, you know, a much, much, much lower risk of those tubes, lines, and cords getting pulled off of the patient. And they've done some amazing testing. They have gotten their approval from the FDA uh, that was in fall. So it is ready for commercial sale right now. They're just going through some, some production. Um, they're you know testing the quality of the production process and then engaging in conversations with hospitals all over. It sounds really fascinating. So, you know, we're still in this global pandemic time and we've seen a tremendous increase in interest in entrepreneurship at Starting Block. What are some of the things that you're seeing? Are there any trends? You mentioned you're working with someone who's doing some really innovative things in the medical um, needs field. We see, we're seeing lots of environmental at Starting Block and some social impact things. Are you seeing any trends or um, any potential spaces or voids that might be filled by an entrepreneur who's home listening and wondering what the hot trends are? One thing is remote learning. And the pandemic made it very clear how socioeconomic differences can impact people's access to that, their ability to learn, um, you know, how successful they are if they do have access to that. And I think that's one where I've seen a lot of great innovation from different ways to get connected to different ways to do, use AI to replace in-person education, um, you know, lab work that you can do through virtual reality or um, different access points for, you know, internet. I mean, broadband in Wisconsin is always a hot topic. And so until we get that figured out, I think some of these other innovations are, are really going to be significant. In general, I think that the fundraising process for all startups has changed too. So a lot of it is more virtual so Zoom meetings, you know, Teams meetings for the fundraising process. Um, I think all startups, regardless of what industry that they're in, have had to kind of adapt to those changes as well. Um, but I think we're kind of getting back to normal. And so I'm seeing a little bit more of a move away from, like you said, some of the healthcare and some of the kind of COVID-focused solutions to some of those more general ones that we were seeing before. 
Have you seen much movement in like creative apps or different like interesting and interactive websites? One of the things that people ask quite a bit at Starting Block is if I come up with this new app design, how am I actually going to make money without tracking people, et cetera? Is there anything interesting that you're seeing or has come across your desk um, for new styles of apps or interesting ways to make money with information, anything like that? Yeah, we did invest in an app-based company. It is a company that monetizes casino data. So it's an interactive app where a player can walk into a casino and see the slot machine floor and get data on the slot machines. So I joke, my parents got married in Vegas but I was never much of a gambler. Venture capital is my my way of gambling. Um, so I told my parents I invested in that one for them. Uh, it's it's exciting. I got I got to beta test it, and you see this map, and it's a heat map, and so it takes data that this company that casinos are already collecting for regulatory purposes. So that's why I think it's so smart. Is they knew that this data was already there. And most casinos use it just for compliance. But what they did is turned it into a way for casinos to make money and for players to have a more kind of engaging, fun experience when they are in the casino. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. The, the gaming, gambling space is huge. And that was another kind of a COVID one is finding ways for people to stay engaged when they're not physically able to go to something like a casino. So this app does that because it can show them all the data of what's happening at the casino, whether they're there or not. Um, and so that was one that I thought was really interesting. And uh, as a non-gambler, I can kind of see how people, uh, you know, why they enjoy it now that I was able to do it with the, with the app. Um, another one that I've, I thought was interesting is we see a lot of social impact investing and we did just make our third investment in a marketplace that's a three-sided marketplace. Uh, it has the provider and the consumer. So it is focused initially on after-school education. Another one where they wanted to make sure that there was equal access to those types of opportunities, regardless of the ability to pay for the programs. So the third side on the marketplace is a donor side. And... I think it's a great approach for the Winnow Fund because it generates money. You know, we'd have a take rate. The company has a take rate on all registration fees. So it is a profit-generating company. But with this partnership that the company has with a nonprofit, they are making these educational opportunities accessible to any child in the community. And it's just an interesting new approach. So social impact investing is, I think it's, it's here to stay. And unfortunately, some people hear that as that's not the same as investing to make money. But I don't, I don't think that they are distinct. I think when you find the right opportunity, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a win-win. What's the most important thing that you learned from your mentor, Ken Johnson? Hmm. Uh, I would say ask. Ask for what you need. And that's something that 
people feel uncomfortable doing, but no one's going to offer you money. You know, no one's going to offer you, um, you know, sales unless you ask for them. And I think that entrepreneurs are going to be the people that are most passionate about what they're doing. There should not be somebody else who's more passionate about what, you know, that the founder of that company is doing. And so if you're not the right person, if you're not comfortable making that ask, then you probably are not going to be the right person to run that company. But it was hard. Uh, I would go to pitch someone, and this has happened to me too, uh, on the flip side when I am, you know, hearing a pitch from a, a startup, I get through the pitch and I say, okay, you know, here's my fund, here's our strategy, here's who I am, here's why I, what I want to do, and here's why I think I'm the right person to do it. And then you just kind of end. And people wonder, okay, well, what do you, what do you want from me? You know, what's next? So that ask is really, really important. You need to clarify why you're there, what you expect from that person. And if, you know, if they say yes, if they say no, then you know what to do after that meeting. But um, you, you have to be able to ask for what you want. Is there a book or a reference material that you've used in the past that you found incredibly valuable as you were educating yourself about venture capital? I wish I could have something original, but venture deals, um, it's, you know, it's like the venture capital, like, Bible. <laughs> it's great for investors, but I think it's better for entrepreneurs because, uh, you know, the lawyer in me says that this is how it goes. Someone, you start on opposite ends. So you've got, you know, the entrepreneur says, this is what's best for me. The investor says, this is what's best for me. And everyone kind of knows you're going to end in the middle. And this book just gets to the point. So it tells you what things are kind of commonly seen and they update it constantly. So, um, you know, it, it is valuable to have the most up-to-date edition of it. But it gives you that education that I said was really important. It talks about some specific things. So there's things in there that you might see, things in there you might never see. But what I think is really important is it talks about prioritizing what's really important to you, both as an investor and an entrepreneur. And sometimes those things are different. So you can come to an understanding pretty easily. Like you can both walk away from the table feeling like you got what you really needed out of that deal. And it's a great book for someone who doesn't have any background in it because it really takes you through it in an understandable, intuitive way. So what's next? What's next for Rochelle? I, you know, I can't stop. I always want to keep doing something new. Um, I have four years left in my investment period and my goal really is fun too. As much as I said, I did not like the fundraising process. I'm already thinking about it. I almost miss it. It was fun going out and meeting people. I would love to continue with Doyen's Investor Accelerator because it would be great to have more women out in the ecosystem and to build that community and um, you know to just help that education kind of continue, pass on what I am learning. And I mean, I don't know. If someone throws an opportunity my way, I might just say yes. <laughs> What's the best way? You've already kind of dropped your website, but uh, can you give us the web address again and the best way for people to get in touch with you? 
Sure, it is winnowfund.com. That's a W-I-N-N-O-W-F-U-N-D. There is a contact us page. There are two options. One, general inquiries. If you are, you know, an investment group, you want to talk about deal flow, see if there's opportunities for partnership, or, you know, if you are someone who's just new to the area, or you want information on, you know, the Investor Accelerator program, that's what you would use. There is a separate form for entrepreneurs who are looking for investment. So it is specifically if you're seeking investment, and it just goes through a couple of those requirements to make sure that we are the right place for you to be coming for that discussion. So it just double checks that you are a Wisconsin-based company, that you are looking for an early stage investment. Like I said, early stage for us is somewhere like two fifty dollars to $500,000. One thing I want to clarify really quick is we have two investment verticals. So we have that traditional kind of initial investment of two fifty dollars to $500,000. And again, pre-revenue type companies, very early stage not a commercially available product yet, but we want to be that first money in. But we also do this proof of concept investment, and we haven't done one yet. So we are hoping to kind of test that that process out soon. But what it's for is entrepreneurs who don't have access to that initial funding, that founders, family, friends round, that some people do, because I think that's one of the reasons that we don't have as much diversity in the you know, startup founder pool is because it categorically excludes people that don't have access to $50,000. And we are happy to help with that. So if we have someone with a really great idea and it has the potential to generate the return that we're looking for, we would be willing to put that small kind of proof of concept payment into a company, you know, kind of a, a shell of a company and see if it can grow. Um, and that's something that I'm, I also feel very strongly about is we're just giving opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't have them. You shouldn't have to have a good idea and a bunch of, you know, disposable money <laughs> to have a good idea. Um, if you have a good idea, then I think, you know, we want to help. Rochelle, thank you for so much for being here today and for all the good work that you're doing. Um, I'll continue observing and being a big fan from the, from the sidelines here. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, I'm honored to have been invited. This was a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Innovate 608 podcast. What's the most innovative thing you've done this week? Record a message all about your innovation and send it to us in an email at innovate608 at startingblockmadison.org. Be sure to check out the Starting Block Madison Facebook page for video clips and episode outtakes. Remember, innovators, do one thing every day that is slightly outside of your comfort zone. That's where the magic happens. Thanks so much to the American Family Insurance Institute for Corporate and Social Impact for sponsoring this episode. See you next time.